If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture-wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or out a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com 1212. This is a special edition of the World According to Zig podcast. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of this show where occasionally we give you information that no one else is providing regarding the so-called Penn State Joe Paterno Jerry Sandusky scandal. And the reason why we're doing a, a special hour this week is that on April the 7th, HBO is debuting a brand new movie called Paterno, starring Al Pacino, a movie by Barry Levinson that has been getting a lot of publicity. I'm sure it will get a lot more when it airs on HBO. I have not seen the movie. I doubt very seriously that HBO, I'm probably on a list of people who would be forever banned from seeing it. Uh, I'm, I'm amazed I'm even allowed to even subscribe to HBO anymore. Uh, because of my role in this case. But I have seen the uh, trailers and I have read interviews with Levinson and Pacino about it. And it's pretty clear to me, not, to no one's surprise, that the movie is going to be a fairy tale. And that fairy tale is going to be that Joe Paterno, somehow, to whatever level, knowingly covered up or enabled or at the very least looked the other way when it came to Jerry Sandusky's 40-year reign of pedophilia that I no longer believe, and I don't think the facts indicate, ever even occurred. Uh, you can find out more about why I know this to be true and the voluminous evidence that backs me up at our website, www.framingpaterno. That's framingpaterno.com. The framing is intended to be figurative, not literal. It's not a conspiracy site. In fact, this there was no conspiracy here. Uh, one of the things I want to do in this hour is explain what really did happen. And instead of focusing as much on Jerry Sandusky, I want to focus on Joe Paterno himself. Because even if Jerry Sandusky really was a pedophile, which again, he's not. Uh, and I'm not even I don't even think he was medically capable of doing what was claimed, and we have the medical records that I believe prove that. And it's possible he even has a genetic condition that would have been made it impossible for him to do the vast majority of what he was accused and convicted of, of doing. But let's just pretend for a second that he really was a pedophile. <laughs> even still, the Paterno movie is based on a complete fairy tale. 
because the idea that Joe Paterno was in any way culpable for what happened here is totally... It's just flat-out ridiculous. It's, it's absurd. It's absurd logically. It's absurd legally. And in fact, like everything else about this case, it's upside down. It's the exact opposite of reality. The reality is, and I've said this 101 times over the last several years, after investigating this case more closely than anybody else ever has or should have, because it's been the worst thing that's ever happened in my life, and I've had a lot of bad things happen in my life, Jerry Sandusky is only in prison today because of Joe Paterno. Let me repeat that. That's how absurd this whole thing is. If not for Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky would be playing golf today. And that's not hyperbole. That's a fact. And let me explain why that's a fact. Here's the essence of the case to review. So the fairy tale that you've been told is that a then graduate assistant at Penn State by the name of Mike McQuarrie, supposedly in 2001, although I no longer believe that's when it happened, but originally thought to be 2002, so they already got the date, the month, and the year wrong once. Mike McQuarrie allegedly walked in on a shower scene where Jerry Sandusky was supposedly sexually abusing a young boy. Now, it's important to point out, McQuarrie never said he saw anything. He said he heard things. He heard things. And then through a mirror, he saw for two or three seconds something that didn't seem right to him. Now, did he stop it? No. <laughs> Mike McQuarrie, six foot four, six foot five, 230 pound guy in his 20s, all full of muscles. Jerry Sandusky, an older guy, naked and wet. Uh, if you see an older man sexually abusing a boy, under those circumstances, uh, what level of beat the crap out of him uh, it, it occurs, ensues? And I, look, I get the shock element, but I'm sorry. This is a guy who was a quarterback for a football team that played in front of 100,000 people. He had 300-pound linemen bearing down on him constantly as a, as a quarterback. This is not a guy who is prone to total panic. Yet he just walked away, slammed the locker door and walked away. I'm certain because while he was weirded out by what he saw, because uh, it was a, not what he expected, I think he was expecting to see a man and a woman having sex in the shower. That's what he, he heard slapping sounds, which was Jerry and the boy goofing around. And he ex was expecting to see some sexual situation. And then he's like, whoa, wow, that hurt my eyes. You know, it's because it's an old man and a boy. I get it. It's I get it. But again, it's important to point out, this is, I believe, December 29, 2000. It's a very different era, especially in Happy Valley, Pennsylvania. This is not post-Catholic Church scandal. This is a very different era. It's pre-9-11. It's a different, it's a different world, okay? Especially in state college. Uh, the year late 2000, you know, might as well have been 1980. <laughs> the rest of the country. This is a very, it's literally called Happy Valley, right? Jerry Sandusky grew up in a rec home where everyone was naked all the time. Uh, and so, and the kid who was there was been on the record numerous times saying nothing ever happened. But I'm just gonna, I'm not gonna ignore all that. I'm, just, I'm gonna pretend that's not in the record, that that didn't happen. And I'm still telling you what the Paterno movie is based upon is complete bullcrap. Because 
here's what transpires. So supposedly, although I believe that the evidence no longer indicates this, supposedly McQuarrie tells his dad and his dad's boss, who's a doctor, what he saw. Neither one of them thinks that this needs to be reported to police, even though the, the doctor, Dr. Dranoff, asked Mike three times if he saw a sex act. He said no. He was a mandated reporter, the doctor was. Never indicated that Mike should go to the police. He never went to the police. He never reported it. So technically, he should have been charged with not reporting because he was told of this situation more so maybe even than Penn State was. And then supposedly the next day, Mike McQuarrie goes to see Joe Paterno. I don't believe that's what happened. I believe Mike McQuarrie waited five or six weeks based upon the new timeline that we've been able to prove, which I've put out at framingpaterno.com. And you can see for yourself, and I've done extensive podcasts on this. And then my story makes a hell of a lot more sense <laughs> than, than their story. But let's just go by their story. I'm willing to go by their story because it's still absurd. So then supposedly McQuarrie goes over to Joe Paterno's place after calling him and saying, uh, hey, coach, can I see you? Supposedly Paterno tells him, if this is about a job, don't bother coming over. I don't have one for you. Now, that's a fascinating statement because Sue Paterno, who was there that day and has an iron trap memory, has said in my presence to me, while I'm sitting at the very table where this conversation between Mike McQuarrie and Paterno allegedly occurred, she's in the kitchen, and I referenced the statement, if this is about a job, don't bother coming over. I don't have one for you. She screamed at me in front of numerous other people. That never happened. I don't know Sue Paterno at all at this point. And I'm like, whoa. I mean, I'm, I'm downplaying how much she screamed at me. Now, I've been around enough older couples to know that when the wife of a, of a guy who's been married to, you know, to her for that long <laughs> says for sure that he didn't say something, he didn't say something, all right? It did not happen. And again, she was there that day. So what's really going on? Well, at the time, I had no idea why this might be significant because I'm presuming, at this point, I'm presuming Jerry Sandusky is guilty. I'm presuming McQuarrie isn't completely full of shit. I, I, I'm presuming there must be something to all this, and I, I'm not putting it all together yet as to what really transpired. Well, now I know. Here's what really happened. Mike made that statement up about the job. Why? Because it really was about a job. Because we now know, because we didn't know at the time, we now know that on February 7th and 8th, this allegedly happened on February 9th. He goes to see Joe Paterno on February 10th of 2001. Again, I don't believe this is what really happened, but this is this, the, this is the conventional wisdom right now. This is the prosecution's version of the story. On, on February 7th and 8th, a job opened up. A job that Mike McQuarrie desperately wanted. A job that, interesting, Mike, interestingly, Mike McQuarrie would get three years later. Not at the time. This is incredibly important. Incredibly important. The wide receivers coaching job, Kenny Jackson leaves Penn State, goes to Pittsburgh Steelers. Wide receivers coaching job opens up. It's in the newspaper the morning of the of the 8th or 9th. And then all of a sudden on the 10th, just by coincidence, coincidence, what amazing coincidence, then uh, Mike McCurry goes to Joe Paterno on the 10th. Just happens to go to Joe Paterno on the morning of the 10th. The day after, it's in the newspaper in the morning. 
that the Kenny Jackson wide receivers coaching job is open. And then just happens 10 years later when this becomes an issue. That's incredibly important. There's a 10-year gap between when this allegedly occurs and this becoming a public issue. Just happens to create this statement from Joe Paterno that, hey, if this is about a job, don't bother coming over. I don't have one for you. At best, that's Mike McCreary's subconscious. Mike McCreary's subconscious knows that the reason why he went to go see Joe Paterno was because he wanted FaceTime with Joe Paterno with an open job. Now, why he did this at the time, I have my theories. There's a couple different possibilities, but none of them make sense with the idea that he saw some sort of sex assault the night before. And we have further information that has just been revealed in the last few months that I'm now in the process of making public. I believe it'll be public by the time you hear this podcast, that Sue Paterno has contradicted the very essence of Mike's story about the nature of that meeting on February 10th, the morning of February 10th, 2001. Because Sue Paterno has told someone directly involved in this case in an email, which we have, which I'll make public, if I haven't already, saying, quote, the meeting only lasted three minutes. Three minutes. Use your common sense, folks. That is not possible. It is, it is not, two things are not possible. It is not possible for Mike to allow the meeting to occur for three minutes if he had seen a sexual assault the night before. That is not possible. I don't care. It's Joe Paterno, the great Joe Paterno, the old man, the grandpa figure. Everyone revered him. He grew up, you know, I get all that. No, no possible way that you're allowing, because let's say Joe blew him off. Hey, I'm really busy. By the way, apparently Joe was getting out of the shower. How, how ironic is that? Joe was getting out of the shower, getting ready to leave to go on a trip for an event in Pittsburgh that night. And so let's pretend Paterno says, look, Mike, I don't have much time for you. What do you got? Mike is still going to say, coach, this is really important. I, I got to tell you what happened. I can't believe it. I saw Jerry Sandusky sexually abusing a, a young boy last night. And then Joe would go, oh, whoa, okay. Okay, let's sit down and let's talk about this. According to Sue Paterno, who is invested, because the whole family is invested, in McQueary having told the truth, which was a massive political blunder on their part because of their son, Scott Paterno, the lawyer and PR guy for, for Joe, who's a complete buffoon and who I blame for most of what happened here. So this is against self-interest for Sue to say this in an email. But it's incredibly critical because it obliterates Unless Sue is lying and she has no reason to lie and she has a great memory and she was there. If it's three minutes, there's no possible way Mike tells Joe anything of significance. None. And there's, and there's no way anything of significance had occurred because Mike would not have run away in three minutes. And Joe never would have allowed the conversation to only be three minutes especially when he told him to come over, apparently, even if it was, if he never said anything about, if this is about a job, don't bother. So let's even just use the prosecution narrative. So what does Joe Paterno do? He doesn't tell Mike McQuarrie to shut up about this and go away. He never does. In fact, Mike McQuarrie has been asked numerous times, anyone ever tell you to shut up about this? Nope, nobody. 
He also doesn't give Mike McCreary the open job, which is incredibly important. First thing you would do in a cover-up, you give Mike McCreary that open job. It's a job he wanted, a job he was qualified for. We know this because he got it when it reopened three years later. Mike remains a lowly graduate assistant. People need to understand what a graduate assistant is. You're basically dirt. You are dirt. You, you, you're part-time. You're making basically no money. Mike, if this had really happened, would have had enormous leverage. Hey, I want that job or else I'm going to go public about this. None of that happens. By the way, Jerry Sandusky at this time was up for the head coaching job at the University of Virginia. This exact same time period. Jerry's still in the game. He could have tried to leverage it to get Jerry to get him a job somewhere else. Does that ever happen? No. Nothing. Nothing remotely like that. So there was no cover-up. Inherently, there was no cover-up. But we know further why there was no cover-up. Because what does Joe do? Joe, stunningly, goes immediately, even more quickly than he thought that he did, because his original recollection 10 years later is that he didn't tell anybody over the weekend because he didn't want to ruin anybody's weekend. And he got mocked for that. Well, that wasn't even true. We now know that he did tell people immediately because we have the documentation, which we didn't have at the time. He told the athletic director immediately that Mike had come to him saying that he saw something that made him uncomfortable regarding Jerry Sandusky. The athletic director tells the head of the campus police, Gary Schultz. Tim Curley is the athletic director. The legal counsel for Penn State is brought in over the weekend. They immediately investigate all this. Jerry Sandusky is brought in by Tim Curley. He is spoken to twice. Mike McQuarrie is spoken to by Tim Curley and Gary Schultz. There is there's no cover-up here. Numerous people know about this. I mean, this is the worst cover-up in the history of the world if this is a cover-up. There, I mean, everybody knows about this. This is not the type of story you can keep under wraps, folks. <laughs> this is this is a local legend who's recently retired and has been up for has been in the news because he's up for and then ended up not getting at the last second under under very unfortunate circumstances that had nothing to do with pedophilia, up for the University of Virginia head football coaching job at the end of 2000. I actually believe that he finds out about that job the night, the morning after this event actually occurred, meaning that that weekend was like the worst weekend in the history of weekends for Jerry Sandusky, who did absolutely nothing wrong and ended up, he's going to die in prison because of it, and the entire Penn State legacy got destroyed because of this event that did not really occur. But again, I'm just going to accept most of what the prosecution and the media is selling. It still doesn't make any damn sense because everybody knows about this. It gets fully investigated. Now, the biggest mistake that Penn State made, and it was tragic, and I think Tim Curley is still broken up about this today, is that Jerry says to them, hey, why don't you contact the boy that was with me that night? His name is Alan Myers. Now, he didn't tell him the name, I don't think. Maybe he did. We don't. No one would remember all these years later. But he offers to put Tim Curley in touch with Alan Myers. Tim decides, I believe, because he realizes that there's nothing to this, he decides not to bother the kid and does not contact him. Had he made contact, the whole world might have been different. But he does not make that phone call. Well, from then... Nothing happens. 
it's it's not as if we we suddenly have all this uh, evidence that uh, Jerry Sandusky is is a pedophile and that Penn State is covering up. There's there's one episode that in retrospect, which had been investigated by the DA and found to be unfounded from 1998, that in retrospect now looks like Penn State is somehow aware that Jerry Sandusky is a pedophile, but this is all as a result of reverse engineering. People are presuming a reality that's not in evidence and interpreting events through that false prism. The reality is, of course, it makes it's weird. Well, why is Jerry Sandusky getting himself in, involved in these two different episodes within three years period of time involving showering with boys? That seems awfully weird and suspicious, doesn't it? Well, that's on the surface, yes. Except when you understand who Jerry Sandusky is, you understand his background, you understand these kids that he's dealing with running this uh, charity for at-risk kids, the second mile. You also have to understand the time period is a much simpler time period. It's pre-Catholic church scandal. When you understand it in proper context, the way the analogy I use is it's kind of like this. Like I, I hardly ever get splinters in my hands. Bear with me. This is a good analogy. I think, well, why don't I ever get splinters? Because I'm not, a, I don't work with my hands. I don't, I don't, I don't you know, I, I'm not a, a, a handsy guy around the house. I, I'm, 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 I certainly, I have no reason to get splinters. Well, why did Jerry Sandusky get a couple of splinters? Because his job was a carpenter. Okay. That, that's what he did. So if you're a carpenter and you're doing this every day, as the societal norms start to change and you're a dinosaur from another era, guess what? You're going to get a few d splinters from time to time. And when they're investigated, oh, okay, this is just a mistake. It's no big deal. Try to do better next time. The great irony, and there's so many ironies, but everything about this case is the opposite of what is uh, perceived to be. And I mean everything. The white hats are the black hats. The black hats are the white hats. Everything is upside down of reality. The, the reality here is, I think that Penn State was actually too tough on Jerry Sandusky, as was Joe Paterno. I believe that if they made a mistake, they were actually being too careful and too tough and making sure they actually covered their ass too much. And in retrospect, when you look at the emails between the administrators, it looks like to the untrained eye, oh my gosh, they know Jerry Sandusky's a pedophile and they're covering up for him. No, they don't. They think he's innocent and they're afraid of destroying him and the charity with a false accusation that gets out because he's a celebrity. It gets in the media and then it's over. That's what they're worried about. But they want to make sure he gets the message, which he's being adult. He doesn't really get. Now, he did get it more than what is perceived because there's no evidence that I've ever seen that's credible that after this second warning that Jerry Sandusky ever has a shower with a boy on Penn State's campus. And by the way, for those who think that Jerry is guilty and had this obsession with showering with boys, why was there never one allegation? Not one. And I've seen all the settlement uh, questionnaires, so I know all the allegations from all 36 of those who got paid $118 million from Penn State. 
But there was no trial accusation and no settlement accusation, not one of Jerry Sandusky ever showering with a boy in his house. Think about that, folks. If you had an obsession with showering with boys, right, either because you're a pedophile or maybe you're just getting your jollies, where's the safer place to be? Your house, where, by the way, you're in probably closer confines and you're completely safe because you control 100% who comes in and comes out, or a semi-public Penn State shower where hundreds of people have access and it's a huge facility and you have no idea when anyone's coming in or coming out. I would suggest to you that that doesn't make any sense. That there would be at least some allegations of this happening at Jerry's house, and there's zero. And that Jerry thought in his mind of the Penn State locker room as a public place, much like his rec home where he grew up, and this was no big deal. It was stupid. It was reckless. But it was not criminal. And it was not ill-intentioned. He's just a moron. That's what this is. He's a freaking moron. But anyway, back to Joe Paterno. So one of the things I'm going to be fascinated about in this movie, this HBO movie that's going to be a fairy tale, and the fairy tale that I describe is that basically they're going to do a movie, uh, you know, about Christmas. And uh, they're going to accept that Santa Claus is real. We have to accept that. And that, you know, in most likelihood, uh, elves make toys and reindeer fly. That's the level of fairy tale we're talking about here with this Paterno movie. And one of the things I'm going to be most interested in looking at is how are they going to deal with the fact that in the media narrative, because there's a major, major, major fundamental flaw with the major with the media narrative. The media narrative now is that because these 1970s accusers, 1971 and 1976, whose identity I know, Randy Tice and Michael Quinn, respectively, 71 and 76, I know their identity, therefore I know their stories, which now, therefore, I know the stories are absurd. They're lies. And the reason why they mentioned Joe Paterno is because that's the only way Penn State was going to pay them because the Second Mile charity did not exist yet until 1977. They were way outside the statute of limitations. And they got paid because, specifically because, they pay. They mentioned Joe Paterno. It's not a coincidence that the oldest accusers, the ones before the Second Mile charity begins, the ones way outside the statute of limitations, are the only ones that mention Joe Paterno. What an amazing coincidence again. They mentioned Joe Paterno because that's the only way they were going to get paid. That's what happened. That's the only logical explanation. But speaking of lack of logic, so how's this movie going to handle the fact you have to pick a lane? So did Joe Paterno know about Jerry Sandusky in 1971 and 1976, which is what the media narrative now is? If that's the case, as, a, as a insane as that is, and as lacking in any evidence of that as there is, let's pretend that that's the case. Fine. He somehow knew in 1971 and 1976 and did nothing about it because at that point, Jerry Sandusky was a nobody. He was barely even on the coaching staff. He was not a star former player. He was barely a coach. He hadn't coached anybody to a national championship at that point. The second mile charity didn't exist at that point. He's a nobody. But for some reason, Joe Paterno decides, you know what? Screw it. I don't really like kids anyway. And Jerry's a, got you know, potential as an assistant linebackers coach or something. And I'm just going to keep him on the staff. But if that's the case, 
So then why does Joe Paterno blow up the cover-up 40 years later? Why does that happen? Why? He blows it up 30 years later and then again 40 years later. He blows it up in 2001 by reporting Jerry to the athletic director and the head of the campus police. And then 10 years later, when the investigation's going on, he blows them up further by being the only person to testify in the grand jury that Mike McQuarrie told him anything about a sex act. And he does so in a very vague and unreliable way at the age of 84 and about a year from death. In fact, almost exactly a year from death. Frankly, he has no idea what's going on. A month before that testimony, he does a radio interview before a bowl game that is so bad, it goes viral because he cannot hear anything. He cannot hear anything. And yet one phrase, one phrase that frankly, if the the stenographer had put a question mark at the end of it, none of this happens. I'm serious. One phrase from an 84-year-old guy who can't hear is all they have to substantiate that Mike McQuarrie had somehow reported a sex act of any kind. His dad doesn't do that. The Dr. Dranoff doesn't do that. Tim Curley, who spoke to him, doesn't do that. Gary Schultz, who spoke to him, doesn't do that. Nobody does that except Joe Paterno. And why does Joe Paterno do that? I believe Joe Paterno was manipulated by the Office of Attorney General because if you look at his police interview just before he gave his grand jury testimony, the word sex is not in it. It's not in it. Nothing remotely about sex. Nothing. And I believe, and Scott Paterno has even tweeted against his own self-interest, although he might not be smart enough to realize this, that uh, he was there and witnessed somebody from the OAG's office suggesting, I don't want, I may not have the verbiage exactly right, but effectively suggesting to Joe that this might've been of a sexual nature. Effectively implanting that word, not a word Joe Paterno would be known for using, into his brain, which then comes out in the grand jury testimony, which we don't even have a recording of. We don't even know how he said it. It's, it's a stenographer's one phrase. But then... Here's the ultimate proof that Joe Paterno is, is not only not to blame for Jerry Sandusky, he's actually the guy who put Jerry Sandusky in prison. Here's the proof. Because just before Jerry Sandusky is arrested in November of 2011, the attorney general's office decides to do one more interview. One more. And it's with who? Joe Paterno. It's with Joe Paterno. Why? Because Joe Paterno is the most respected man in the state, the modern history of the state. And they know his grand jury testimony stinks. They know it's way too vague. And they know that if they arrest Jerry Sandusky based upon Mike McQuarrie's testimony, and the media goes to Joe Paterno and says, Joe, what's this all about? What'd Mike tell you? And Joe says, ah, I don't remember. I, what, that was, what was that, 10 years ago? I don't remember what he told me. It's over. Because it's Joe freaking Paterno. And they need to make sure that he is nailed out. They need to make sure there is no wiggle room for Joe Paterno. So what do they do? They interview him in late October 
with his son, Scott, the guy I blame for all this, the only other person in the room. So it's the investigator, Scott Paterno, and Joe Paterno at his house. And in that interview, which I'm the one who revealed to the public, because no one had a self-interest to do it, because no one could understand it, because it doesn't really help anybody unless you fully understand the story. But if you fully understand the story, you understand how this occurred. But in that interview, now Joe is far stronger in his defense of Mike McQuarrie. He's far stronger in his recollection of what Mike allegedly told him, which I don't believe he actually did. And now they have enough to arrest Jerry Sandusky. Now, why did this happen? Did Joe Paterno at the age of almost 85 suddenly remember what occurred 10 years later in a, in a situation where he had the wrong date, the month, and the year? It's important to point that out. Joe Paterno died thinking this episode occurred in March of 2002 when we know for sure that didn't happen. So he doesn't even know the date, the month, and the year. And he's a few months from death. And he's almost 85 years old. So how does this happen? Well, I believe that Scott Paterno, I'm not suggesting in a nefarious way. I think his intentions were actually probably good. But it's Scott Paterno who is thinking this is all real. We need to get out ahead of this. We need to make sure we don't obstruct this investigation. We need to make sure we separate ourselves as much from Jerry Sandusky as we possibly can. So we're going to back Mike to the hilt. And they do. Joe Paterno backs Mike McQuarrie to the hilt. And now the attorney general's office feels comfortable arresting Jerry Sandusky. It's literally the last thing they do. So you cannot blame Joe Paterno for Jerry Sandusky getting away with this. In fact, you should be giving Joe Paterno credit if you believe Jerry Sandusky is guilty because it's only because of Joe Paterno that Jerry Sandusky was ever even arrested after the end of a three-year investigation that was going nowhere for the first two years until Mike McQuarrie suddenly fell in their lap under very suspicious circumstances. So there is no logic no evidence whatsoever to support the idea that Joe Paterno was culpable here. In fact, if Joe Paterno made a mistake in all this, consistent with my view that everything about this case is upside down, he made a mistake of being too tough on Jerry Sandusky. Remember, he's a law and order Republican, friend of the Bush family. You know, conservatives believe in the prosecution. We believe in law and order. We tend to believe everybody's guilty. Even Joe, though, was still never sure that Jerry Sandusky was really guilty. And on his deathbed, he actually says, all I just want is for someone to find the truth. His own family, unfortunately, has not been interested in that. They don't want the truth. They want a narrative that helps the people involved in the story, specifically Scott. Because Scott bought into a false narrative for reasons that I've all articulated uh, on YouTube. You can find that if you're interested. That all make very clear sense. But it's all it's in his self-interest, because if he got it wrong, this is all his fault, which is, I believe, what, exactly what happened. This is all his fault. He allowed Joe Paterno to fall for a false narrative under well-intentioned circumstances. He had never had a conversation with Jerry Sandusky ever. He didn't know Jerry Sandusky from Jerry Glanville, literally. Had no idea. And so he buys in that this is real, and he effectively helps convince, along with the attorney general's office, Joe Paterno of something that did not happen because they used Joe Paterno's best instincts, the idea that he's pro-prosecution, the, the idea that he backs up his own 
coaches. He's a loyal guy. He can't understand why Mike McQuarrie would be doing this to him if it wasn't real. He can't remember what happened 10 years earlier. And he gets manipulated into giving the prosecution what they need. So it's not Joe Paterno's fault that Jerry Sandusky got away with this. It's Joe Paterno that effectively gets him arrested and essentially gets him convicted, partially because he ends up dying a couple months after Jerry Sandusky's arrest and his own firing. And Joe Paterno's death ends any hope for Jerry Sandusky to get a fair trial. Because Jerry Sandusky is now getting a trial seven months after the arrest, five, five months or four months after Joe Paterno's death. He's not just a notorious pedophile. He's the pedophile that killed Joe Paterno. Good luck with that in State College, Pennsylvania. You got no shot. And Jerry is stupid enough to think that the best strategy was to have Penn State people on his jury. That's how stupid he is. He overruled his own attorney and kept people on the jury, including one person who said they couldn't be objective. One woman couldn't be objective because her family was so close to Mike McQuarrie, but he kept her on the jury because she was from Penn State. And he thought Penn State people would understand this couldn't possibly be true. When in fact, they had a huge self-interest to believe it's true. And they still to this day have a self-interest. That's what's why this story has no chance of ever being salvaged because even Penn Staters now have a sick, perverse self-interest into believing it's real because they would rather believe it's real having gone through all the trauma than to believe that they threw one of their own people under the bus unnecessarily and caused all this damage over nothing and paid $118 million to a bunch of frauds. So that's what's really happened here. Now, this movie is based a large part in Sarah Ganim. She's a consultant, the reporter who got the Pulitzer Prize. Sarah Ganim is a first-class fraud. She started this case as a 23-year-old part-time reporter at a small newspaper in central Pennsylvania. Now, she's either a journalistic savant or she was fed information for the purposes of facilitating the prosecution. There's no other option. So let's look at the record. What has she done since then? Um, nothing, nothing. Despite going to CNN, where she's got all the resources in the world, she's done nothing. And in fact, the only thing she's known for is being caught laughing on set with Wolf Blitzer while reporting on, oddly enough, a horrific abuse case. That's what she's known for now. I'm sorry. It sounds like ageism or sexism. It's not. A 23-year-old woman could not possibly understand the intricacies of this case instantly. What really happened was she was used by the prosecution to put a Craigslist ad out for new accusers. And I'm not just saying that. We have voluminous evidence of that. Some of it was brought forward at Jerry Sandusky's trial, stipulated to by the prosecution. We have an email from her to Graham Spanier, telling Graham Spanier incorrectly that he's going to get indicted, that she had been told by the Attorney General's office he's going to get indicted months before he actually was, and she wanted his reaction, proving that she is getting false leaks from the Attorney General's office, that she is a, a, a stooge, she's a tool of the prosecution. And that's where this amazing journalism came from. It's not that she was beating the bushes and figured this all out. She was handed it because they were desperate. They had no case. And she's the heroine of this movie.
I appeared with her for about 15 seconds on CNN on the old Piers Morgan show after she ambushed me, told me on Twitter that she would never even consider coming on with me. And then all of a sudden there she was. And it was a complete disaster. You can find that on, on YouTube. But uh, this is a woman who has never faced any serious questions. It was laughable because when they were promoting this movie, she was part of a panel here in Southern California to promote the movie. And all these people on the panel were like, I've never heard of something like this where a 23-year-old you know, part-time reporter uncovers this massive scandal. Well, you've never heard about it before because it didn't really happen. Could you please use your brains? And so she's the heroine of this fraudulent movie, this fairy tale. Now, I, I want to provide one other piece of evidence that's never been made public before that to me is, is fascinating and really goes to show what was going on inside Penn State and why I know this is all big fraud. And this is just a small but important piece of the overall puzzle. But the guy who was the chairman of the board of trustees for a, a, an important part of this story and was in charge of all of the settlements, the 36 settlements for $118 million, is a guy by the name of Ira Lupert. Ira Lupert did an interview uh, about the history of Penn State wrestling because he's a big supporter of Penn State wrestling. And during that interview, which was on the record, he was asked about the Penn State Sandusky Paterno case by someone who believes strongly and has very strong reason to believe that Jerry Sandusky is actually innocent. And what you're about to hear here is about three minutes of Ira Lupert speaking with this person and saying some extraordinary things. This is a guy who had more access to more alleged information than anybody on the planet as the person in charge of these settlements. A guy who paid the 1970s accusers. Not much, but it didn't matter because when they got leaked to the media, no one cared about the fact they only got a few hundred thousand dollars or their story didn't make any sense because the media loved the narrative. Oh my God, Joe Paterno knew about this in the 70s. Ooh, so we weren't really wrong. We didn't really railroad a dead guy. Well, you did, but you were just given bad information by someone with an agenda. But listen to what Ira Lupert says here. He, first of all, calls Joe Paterno and the three administrators, Graham Spanier, Tim Curley, and Gary Schultz, great men. Right there. How does that make any fucking sense? You paid, you paid $118 million, allegedly because Penn State covered up for the acts of these men. Or not the act of Jerry Sandusky, but they, it was their acts of cover-up, allegedly. Not to mention these 70s accusers who supposedly said that, that they did claim that Joe Paterno was told about their abuse by Jerry Sandusky. And they're great men? That's not possible. He also says that he thinks that some of the guys he paid were on the gravy train. That's a quote. Others were exaggerating. That's a quote. He effectively says that he just paid them off to go away because it was better for the university. But most astonishingly, when pressed on why he thinks Jerry Sandusky is actually guilty, he doesn't come up with any actual facts. No, he uses a circular argument of, look, uh, if that was the case, I can't believe that uh, Gary Schultz and Tim Curley would have pled guilty to misdemeanors with a polluted jury pool with the media dead set against them. Or that Grand Spanier would have been convicted again, of a, dis a misdemeanor, a misdemeanor that the jury foreman said was illegitimate the next day, or that Joe Paterno would have said he wished he had done more, forgetting the most important part of that quote, which was, with the benefit of hindsight. 
and that was in a bid to try to save his job that I believe was, again, facilitated by, facilitated by the moron Scott Paterno, who was running the very ill-fated PR for the Paterno forces at that time. None of that has anything to do with Jerry Sandusky's guilt. It's a, it's a completely upside-down circular argument. So listen to this from Ira Looper, and it's clear, by the way, he doesn't ever think this is going to become public, which is why it's fascinating, because it's the real truth. I believe all four of the great people have a lot of respect for all of them. I think they did amazing things for the university. But all four of them used poor judgment and poor leadership. And as a result of that, they couldn't continue to lead our university. But I... No, I, I, I agree. I fired him for that reason. Not because he broke the law, because he used bad judgment. And what I have seen happen over the last five or six years is people have all these fears. Right. And they try to compound all the information. And they get a snippet of information over here and they expand upon it over here. But at the end of the day, we have five people. Two were convicted, two pled guilty, and one said, in hindsight, I wish I had done more. To say you think nothing happened, and that Jerry was totally innocent, I just have trouble with all the other facts surrounding why all that happened to these five guys. Mm-hmm. I just got paid. No, I, I, I can... I mean, after one battle, I can say, okay, maybe a point. Right, and that's, that's where you're right. It, it's, it's very complex. And you, you know you, you you're right. And if there's four, it's a lot less. Diff, it's a it's a huge whole whole lot amount of difficult, more difficult to to really see how that could be. And then you have multiple victims. You know, as you're saying, there would be thirty-six victims. Right. Five. Two were convicted. Two quite guilty. One said when he relied on Christ, so I wish I had done more. You can take a lot of that out of context. A lot. Right. Or not to talk about five different people. Right, and that's why. They're not all that good. There's some that were on a way to crank. There's some that we settled for 100 grand. It would have cost us more litigation. But there were some real good. There's some guys that were there. Tried to commit suicide. I was in a position to see it. I read, I, I, I was involved in it. There's some very bad situations. Did some, did some people exaggerate their situation? Yes, they did. Did some lawyers step in, in front and say, this is far worse than it was and I want more money? Absolutely, that happened. And wherever I could, I settled it. But believe me when I tell you, there was some bad stuff going on. 
And so that fascinating audio, again, is just a small piece of the tip of the iceberg of the stuff that I have uncovered, other people have uncovered in this case. You can find most of it at framingpaterno.com, including, uh, if it hasn't been already, hopefully soon, the entire Newsweek cover story that ended up getting torched and spiked at the very last minute. That's about 20,000 words that gives you all the basic facts of this case that have never been made public before and which provide a completely 100% totally different narrative. But when you, if and when you watch this Paterno movie, just look at it from the perspective of everything being upside down. The good guys are the bad guys and the bad guys are the good guys. And of all of the many injustices in this situation, the idea that Joe Paterno's entire life, 61 years at Penn State, an exemplary record both on and off the football field, has been completely destroyed by a situation where he's actually the hero, <laughs> if, if Jerry Sadusky is guilty, is just unfathomable to me. And an injustice of epic proportions. And to, to be clear, ironically enough, the very first article that Sarah Gannam wrote about Joe Paterno in this whole story on November 5th, 2011, had the headline, Joe Paterno praised for his handling of Jerry Sandusky sex abuse suspicions. That's the woman who would win the Pulitzer Prize. It's about the only story she's written that was accurate in all of this, because Yes, if Jerry Sineski was guilty, Joe Paterno should have been praised and was praised because without Joe Paterno, Jerry Sineski never even gets arrested. Forget about gets convicted. But this whole case is upside down. All of it. 180 degrees. The greatest travesty that's ever been, I've ever heard of. And unfortunately, the only place you're going to find the truth is my website, framingpaterno.com. That's www.framingpaterno.com. All I ever ask is just share this information, share this podcast via Twitter, Facebook, word of mouth, what have you. And if you have any questions, I'm always, I'm more than willing and able to answer them because only I can answer every question anyone would ever have about this case, as sad and pathetic as that is. That, that'll do it for this special edition of the World According to Zig podcast. I'm John Ziegler. Once again, the website, framingpaterno.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah, they're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh, no wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.